You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Thursday, January the 20th. Lovely, bright, beautiful morning here in TW11. Uh, declarations have come in for the Clarence House chase at Ascot on Saturday. Four have been declared. Hitman is the notable absentee. His trainer, Paul Nichols, joining me later in the programme to tell us why. I'll also be talking to Bloodstock agent David Minton, the man who bought not only Shishkin, but his two great predecessors as divisional leaders at Seven Barrows, Sprinter Sacra and Altior. He discusses the differences between all three and what he looks for in a potential champion racehorse. The Betting and Gaming Council have held their AGM this morning. John Whittingdale, the former minister responsible for gambling, once again reiterating the threat of affordability checks for the betting industry, driving punters potentially to the black market. But we ask the question once again, what should the horse racing industry do? What are the horse racing industry doing ahead of the government's white paper in a bid to safeguard its own future in tandem with the betting industry? Professional gambler Patrick Veach gives us his thoughts. In other news, we're looking forward to the Lingfield Million Friday and Sunday, but there is an inspection. The track will have to pass a precautionary inspection 9 o'clock tomorrow, Friday, because forecast temperatures are set to get quite low. And as far as today is concerned, jockey Robbie Dunn has until the close of play this evening to appeal his 18-month suspension that we've talked about so extensively on this podcast into the bullying and harassment of fellow rider Bryony Frost. But first of all, that shishkin Energumen clash, and David Yates joins me once again this morning. Uh, David, you've been speaking to Nicky Henderson and Willie Mullins this week. What is what they're saying, or not saying, telling us about the likely outcome on Saturday? Well... Let's deal with Shishkin first. I mean, Nicky Henderson, he's full of the joys of spring at the moment. You can you can understand why, because not only does he seem to unleash uh, a viable candidate for one of Cheltenham's novice races uh, virtually every other day, but the, the stable form as a whole uh, is very, very good. The trainer and the horse uh, experienced that uh, difficulty in November running into December, where the trainer took some flack for telling the public 10 days before the race that the horse was uh, wouldn't run and he was then borne out by uh, by the test that produ- that uh, that produced results suggesting there was an issue you could see henderson's reaction when shishkin won the desert orchid uh, chase at, at kempton over christmas that of course was his comeback a 10 length victory that had his trainer uh, shaking with delight in the stands at kempton it it looks as though uh, the situation from Willie Mullins' perspective is a bit different with as regards Energumen. Uh, I rang Ireland's champion trainer yesterday, and he was just a bit a bit guarded. Really, he said he, he was he didn't really want to uh, talk about the horse's prospects uh, for Saturday. I did ask him whether he felt that drying ground could be a problem for Energumen. Remember, we talked on the NLD on Monday that we mentioned that the ground was soft and that uh, there wasn't any rain forecast in uh, the week leading up to the Clarence House chase. And Willie Mullins just replied, it might be. So it's fair to say that confidence is high in Seven Barrows in the chance of Shishkin. I think probably the Mullins camp are just a, a bit more guarded there 
playing their cards a bit closer to their chest. I, I, re- I think that they realise that their their horse is really up against uh, a good one, and it may well be that that certainly if if the market is right, he'll lose his unbeaten record over fences. We spend so much time talking about a horse like Shishkin, and particularly in the lead up to a race like this weekend, we possibly spend too little time talking about why this horse is good what has made him good and perhaps more importantly why he is the third horse in pretty quick succession to be considered a a really dominant leader of his generation in the same stable following sprinter sacra and altior now the man who is in the unique position of sourcing all three horses is bloodstock agent david minton now first of all uh, minty they've come from three completely different sources but clearly your eye is trying to identify something common in in all these horses so it's probably best to start with what that is well my eye I, I, nikki and i've been working long enough together now for since seven, 1978 that i know what he like sort of horse he likes um sprinter sacker was a different story he, he was amongst the job lot and he grew into a lovely horse. He happened, Nicky happened to get three bay horses, all the same, similar mold from Raymond Mold, and one of them was Sprinter Sacra. Um, then we got on to Altior, who's just a, a standout horse at the sales, walked well, had a, an air of, you know, he had a great outlook and disposition and, and wonderful temperament. And then you got to Shiskin, who'd run it when his point of point in Ireland, um, who was also a similar type of mold of Altior, uh, I think you could safely say because um, he walked well. He was an athletic horse, um, and he we bought him, well, I would like to say, a, a reasonably under budget, um, and uh, he he looked the part of the sales. And it was what I what I called it was a typical Nicky type horse. So when Nicky comes to the sales, he gets a shortlist, and uh, then we go through the, the few horses and the, the, that sale there. There were about I think about six on the list for him. Because uh, we cut them down to that, so uh, it's just a case of knowing the sort of horse that Nicky likes and um, being lucky at the time. Yeah, it's, he's had quite an interesting sales history, uh, 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 Shishkin, because he was he was bought by Ben Case and uh, for forty thousand euros from his breeder Clive Bennett, yeah. uh, and then he didn't make all that much as a as a Derby sale store horse. Why do you think that was? Was that just a, a function of the time, the fashion? What what was it about him that wasn't attracting people as an unraced three-year-old, given what a magnificent-looking beast he is now? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, because Clive is the most lovely man. He's got the whole family. He point-to-points them all. And he's a total point-to-point and sells the odd colt foals. He keeps them over in Ireland. And he's the most lovely man, lives in Herefordshire. I see him quite a lot on the point-to-point circuit. Um, he was a lovely foal, I gather. I never saw him as a foal. Um, and then as a three-year-old, obviously, he went, came up from Lady Jane from Goldfordstead. And I'd obviously seen him a bit there as well. And uh, he didn't quite, I suppose he just didn't quite catch the eye. I've, I've often looked my notes up and just put a, just a, a, an okay horse. Um, he certainly didn't uh, think, call blimey, that, that was a steal at the time. He obviously then matured and grew and, and did, well, he, he has grown. He grew into a very impressive horse. I think he was probably going through it. A growing stage um because when you see him now he's he he looks damn sight different than he did when he was a three-year-old at um at the sales whereas if we contrast that with altior of those three would you agree that that was your 
your best bit of business, if you like, because that was where you had to use judgment to to, to pick a horse who had no form. I mean, Sprinter Sacra, as you say, there was a bit of luck involved. It was a huge job, lot of horses. Shishkin had a little bit of form anyway. With Altior, that's your eye, a horse, you didn't pay fortunes for him. No, and Altior, you see, was also had that bit of high, uh, high chaparral in him, the, the bit of flat. And he was probably a mature horse at the sale, and he was a big, strong horse at the sale, and, and he, he didn't have to do much more improving. Definitely, um, Shishkin has Im- improved from three to four to five. Well, when, when we bought him as, a, as an early five-year-old, he, he'd improved um, uh, dramatically from that stage. I think he's just probably a slightly later maturing horse. When you see him now, I mean, you couldn't believe how much how, how well he's, he's he's grown even again, you see. Here's a question for you. Knowing Nicky Henderson as you do and having followed these horses so closely, is it just a coincidence that these three divisional leaders, generational champions, have rocked up in the same stable one after another? Or is it something about the way he handles them? Definitely the way he handles them because his his patience is well known in racing circles anyway. And when you look at the the horses he's got coming on now, novice hurdlers, you've got got some horses who might be classed in the same breath in two years' time. Uh, and I think it's a lot is to do the way he brings them on and trains them and the patience he shows in them. But he's particularly strong in this two-mile division. He, he seems to be able to get horses who aren't necessarily bred to run very fast to run fast. He's a, he, some, he seems to get speed into horses. Yeah, it's quite interesting that. But Sprinter Sacra, he won the two and a half at Liverpool at Aintree and, and I've always wanted, to, wanted him to keep on that line. Shishkin, we are absolutely adamant that he will get further, and I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up at Aintree, possibly, because he he's, there's he could I think the way he runs and his style of racing, he'd get three miles easily. Altior always showed that bit of real speed, and and it, there was never much of a there was a chance he, he, the two and a half was going down the line, but I think Shishkin's more likely of of all three of them, you know, to go further. And I suppose the obvious final question is. Where's the next one? Have you found the next one yet? Who do you think it is? Uh, well, Nicky has got, as you all know, uh, hmm. four pretty decent novice hurdles at the moment, having judged by the one that won yesterday. Um, but and the one I was involved with is Balco Coastal, who who could hopefully be the next one. But he he will go for the Ballymore because he'll stay well, and he runs at probably runs at Cheltenham next week in the trial, uh, Albert Bartlett trial. So um, it'll be interesting. So he's my my hope for going on Balco Coastal at the moment. David Minton there, and the one that won yesterday was a horse called Walking On Air, who Henderson immediately nominated for the Ballymore Novices Hurdle at the Cheltenham Festival, and will join Balco Coastal potentially in that race, and that gives you some understanding as to why Henderson is only too happy to let both John Bon and Constitution Hill run their races in the Supreme Novices, so strong is his hand in all divisions. Well, one man who doesn't fancy taking on Shishkin and Energumen tomorrow is multiple champion trainer Paul Nichols. He was going to run Hitman, but he's not going to, and he's been explaining why. Well, just with the two, um, three really smart horses in the race, I just felt that um, Fengamine or either um, Shishkin hadn't run, I would have definitely gone. But if they're both running, um, and Lash is winners as well, it's a hot enough race. And, you know, got the, the game spirit looming at Newbury on the 12th of February. I thought that would be a nice race for him. So he's going to go there. Uh, it's probably a more realistic target with those two guys running. Um, and it's too close to running both races. So he'll go for the game spirit now. It's quite unlike you not, not, not to run. But is that just a measure of the regard you hold those horses in? You think they just can't be, can't be beaten? There are no flaws. 
Well, I think the way that Shiskin beat um, Grenatine the other day, I think that Shiskin will be the one to beat in the champion chase. If you're going to take a horse on like that, you're going to do it probably once. You won't want to do it twice. And I think Hitman is improving. He's a young horse. Uh, why go there and finish second or third when it's too soon to the game spirit where we might win the game spirit? And, you know, races like the game spirit need supporting, and there's not going to be too, too many runners by then. So I just felt let's go there and then we can go to Chatham after that if we want to or go further. And we've talked quite a bit lately about how often good horses run during a during a season. I mean, have you changed your game on that? I mean, there's a lot of people bemoaning the fact that horses can't have the campaigns they used to have and, and so on. Well, you, I mean, Hitman's only just turned six, so being a young horse, you've got to look after them. If they're a little bit older, you probably could run them more often. But at the same time, if you train them hard and they have hard races, you've just got to give them time to get over it. And you're not going to get the same level of performance out of horses if you keep if you keep on running them. So you've got to try and hit the jackpot. I mean, it's a long sprint for horses like him and some of the others. You know, you've got entry punches, stands, all other meetings. So you just got to just mind where you run them at the moment and just save plenty of ammunition for the better races later on. Because the training of the horses is so much more efficient and we get horses so much fitter now and, and we expect them to be fit every time they, they turn up to the race course, do you think that means that you, you don't sort of pace a season through the races, if you like? So where, where I say 20 years ago, people might run a horse six, seven times, they might not be fit the first couple of times. Now, because they're fitter, they, the races are harder, they take longer to recover from the races. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, yeah, you hit the point that perhaps in those days when they didn't have the facilities and the knowledge we got now, you had to run them a couple of times to get that maximum fitness. Now you can get them, um, like Froden was in Down Raw first time, fit at home first time out. But then, they, yeah, they do have a hard race and they just take a little bit longer to get over it. But I've always felt that if that's really, really fit, they do get over the races sooner. But you've got to get them back into the, that routine again and to achieve the best levels of fitness. And sometimes running them too close together doesn't work. So you've got, to, you've got to be selective with, with those horses and run them in the right races on, on, at the right time. You mentioned Frodon. He, of course, is, is in uh, the Dublin Racing Festival uh, next month. How's he, how's he limbering up for that? He's in good shape, yeah. I mean, he, if, we know, if we get a dry week next week, we might even have a look at the uh, Clarence House. Uh, not sorry, the Clarence House, what they call the Cotswold Chase with him next week, uh, which a race he's won before. And, you know, more often than not, it's on deep ground, which wouldn't suit him. But with a forecast, as it is, it could end up being a dry week. So we might even have a look at that next week and see how, how, how that looks when the entries come out. But Clando Zobo definitely goes to Ireland? Well, he, he, he's got that option or he's got the Denman chase. It'll depend on you know what happens possibly with Frodon and what we're thinking with their fitness and how I see them working next week. So, you know, lots of options for them all and try and run them in the right races, as I said. But yeah, he's, him, both of them are possible. For Grenatine will definitely run in the two-mile out there and one or other will run in the, in the, in, in the three-miler. But, you, but you're giving options to, to both of them. I mean, at some point, do you fancy the idea of taking a, a, a boatload of horses over for that festival? Well, if we had the right horses, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I'm not convinced you want to be sending horses from here to have hard races there and then run at Cheltenham. These horses, apart from Grenadine, won't be going to Cheltenham. Uh, Frodon won't, Clan won't, you know. But I mean, yeah, if I had the right horses, it would. And I, I'm, I'm quite keen this year to keep plenty of horses to go to Punchestown later on in the season. Shouldn't you have just given yourself the option of, of going to Cheltenham with Frodon, even if you if it wasn't your primary target? Yeah, but we can if we want to. I mean, what people forget nowadays is that, you know, you can supplement them. So, you know, there's plenty of money in his pot. He's won plenty this year. And if we decide near the time that, one, you know, one of the, the races are cut up or otherwise, we can still supplement it. You know, if we wanted to, say, go for the, the Ryanair, we can supplement him five days before you know, something we've talked about. So you, you're not ruled out completely. You can mm. just, in fact, some, you can just keep your options open a little bit longer and see what happens and see who's going to turn up. 
So you've got some really interesting runners this weekend. Yalarenki's going for the hat-trick at Taunton in the Portman Cup. You've got Master Tommy Tucker in the new Fleur de Lis chase at, at Lingfield. There's an inspection for their meeting tomorrow, Friday. Uh, would they be your sort of two two leading leading hopes? Yeah, they probably would be. I think we lots of nice novices to run over the weekend. And, uh, but yeah, Yalarenki going for the Portman Cup for the third year running. That's a great prize at Taunton. Um, we've kept him fresh for that since he won at Cheltenham. And Master Tommy Tucker... Again, I've always had this race for him in mind. I think the heavy ground um, and the track will suit him nicely. So, yeah, it's a big pot, that is. And I think Sunday will be all right weather-wise. Friday looks a little bit more dodgy, but I think Sunday will be okay. And, yeah, both those two horses are in good shape. And just looking ahead to some of the, the better horses, a st- Stage Star, who is in all the novice hurdles at, at, at Cheltenham, or is likely to be in all the novice hurdles at Cheltenham, I see you've got him in the Betfair hurdle, and he's an 8-1 to one sort of second favourite for that. Is that an option? No, he won't run there. Nappers Hill's going to run in that race. I've just called Nappers Hill this morning. Um, I think he's the best handicapper of the two. If you think he beat Stage Star twice, and he's actually rated, I think, best part of 13 or 14 pounds below Stage Star because he hasn't quite achieved as much. So Nappers Hill will run there. Stage Star will go straight for the Ballymore. Keep him nice and fresh. He, he's a horse who, he, not the biggest, most robust. He's had three quick races. We're going to go straight to the Ballymore with him. And and Brave Man's game straight to the Brown Advisory. No, he, he could go to he could run it at Newbury as well on 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 Demon Chase Day. You know, Demon ran in the Novice Chase that day before he ran in the Brown Advisory. So I think you know if we're going to run anywhere with him, it will be at Newbury. Well, all sorts of bits and pieces there from trainer Paul Nichols. Uh, Dave, I suppose the one surprising piece of news perhaps is that Frodon, if it carries on being dry could go to the Cotswold chase on Cheltenham Trials Day. So Nichols being opportunistic there, perhaps wondering what, who might turn up. And, and that, we assume, given what he was saying, would negate the chance of him going to the Dublin Racing Festival for the Irish Gold Cup, which had very much been the target. And then he's not ruling out the possibility of supplementing him for the festival for which he is not currently entered. It looked as though uh, three weeks ago that was very much the plan for uh, Frodon and that's definitely news, the fact that they're thinking, well, maybe we might go to the Cotswold chase if that cuts up. I'd be interested to know who's going who's gonna to run in the Irish Gold Cup because this change, this potential change of mind won't be triggered, will it, by the fact there's going to be a, 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 a rash of runners in the Irish Gold Cup. I, I feel that in Paul Nichols' mind, one of the... Uh, one of the consequences of the 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 twenty three five drubbing and the the Irish dominance at Cheltenham, he's been really keen to get over to Ireland when he can. Of course, Frodon Frodon won the um, uh, the Labricks Champion Chase at Down Royal at, at the start or near the start of this season, and of course, Clondis Oboe won at Punterstown as well. So. I, I'm I'm surprised by that. It's it's, it's certainly disappointing because I'd really like to have seen Frodon run in the Irish Gold Cup. So just recapping on the rest of that news, Betfair Hurdle Hope is likely to be Napper's Hill, a horse Nichols considers to be well handicapped. He could be joined on that Super Saturday at Newbury by Brave Man's Game in the novice's chase that had been won by Denman, the horse with whom he seems to suffer from endless comparisons. The Denman chase itself, well, it could be Clandes Oboes if Clandes Oboe doesn't go to Ireland and Stage Star won't go to the Betfair Hurdle. He'll go straight to the Ballymore at Cheltenham. So lots to look forward to for Paul Nichols. Uh, Richie Forrestal has once again touched on the potential reasons for Britain's poor performance at the Cheltenham Festival, but he widens that out in a really interesting piece in the Racing Post today, Dave, where he lays the blame for many of British racing's ills fairly squarely at the foot of the British Horse Racing Authority. What did you make of it? I think it's a really thought-provoking article. Um, I, I really enjoy 
reading Richard Forrestal's stuff, um, how he's not been the racing journalist of the year, I, I really can't understand at all. But that's a side issue um, and not one with, in, into which my input is normally welcomed. Where I would take issue uh, with Richard's piece is, is, is who's to blame in what he says about the BHA's ability to control fixtures. Uh, you know, it, the, the OFT ruling of 2003-2004, when the then British Horse Racing Board was uh, denuded of its ability to control the fixture list and the race courses were set free, um, in, in my opinion, that's the single worst thing that's happened in my time in British racing. And if people think, well, he's being a bit melodramatic saying that, you look at the the consequences that have that have sprung from that. Um, in, if you believe that the, the bloated fixture list is a big part of British racing's problems, um, then that's where it dates back to. And in that sense, I don't think that was an OFT ruling that that took the control out of the British horse racing then board's hands and short of challenging that in the courts which which they didn't do uh, surprisingly now I don't think that gene is going to go back in the bottle and as a result I don't think that's something that the British Horse Racing Authority can do anything about for all that most of us wish it could. Yeah the key point here and it's been made over decades now is that the BHA or the BHB as it was then and originally the Jockey Club when it was the sport's governing body, they were the controllers of the supply of the product of British racing. And the demand was dictated by the bookmakers. Now the control of the supply is in the hands of the racecourses and the bookmakers to a certain extent, but the BHA is simply a mediator between the supply and the demand rather than the controller. It works hard to mediate, but there's a limit to to what it can actually do. You'd like to think there was no limit to the ferocity with which the BHA could apply itself to lobbying government to ensure that the gambling review didn't have catastrophic consequences for the financing of the sport. What should it do, I wonder? Well, today I've been speaking to professional gambler Patrick Veach for his take on how to approach this issue. All these type of things can only make it harder to get bets on and also potentially undermine the whole you know, fabric of horse racing and the ability of horse racing to finance itself. Um, so, yeah, it's very serious. You know, uh, I have nothing on that point to say any different to what we've heard, has been heard in so many quarters, that this is a very, very dangerous threat. The key thing I would focus on is in trying to seek lower limits for the slots and casinos. Um, in some senses, that's more important than what the, the eventual limit for the, the gambling on lights of horse racing is. Because if we can achieve what should happen, that the far more dangerous uh, betting on slots and casinos, which is more addictive, it's, you can lose the money much faster, um, it's just a, just a generally more dangerous type of gambling. If we can achieve that having a substantially lower limit, then there are two potential big wins and there's even the chances could end up putting horse racing in a better in a better position and obviously that can also be a point made that that then supports the jobs in the industry and that sort of thing because lower limits for slots and casinos give us two individual wins 
Firstly, that means that the betting customer potentially has more money in his pocket to recreationally play on horse racing and that sort of thing because he's restricted in how much he can lose on these fairly farcical slots and casinos. But secondly, the way that changes it, for the change of the whole situation for the bookmakers and the slots and casino operators, that they no longer will have an incentive to push their marketing budgets at those type of customers. If those type of customers are going to be restricted to maybe £100 a month or something like that, it becomes much more valuable to obtain a horse racing customer. And that shift we've seen in their marketing where, be it across betting shops, advertising, sponsorship, there's been this focus on slots of casinos, that potentially all changes. So we get that double win, more money in the customer's pocket, and suddenly, potentially, we've got the bookmakers and the like acting on our side instead of trying to take our customers and get them to spend elsewhere. Genuinely, do you think it's possible for horse racing to make an ethical case that the public will believe that betting on horse racing is somehow a, a, a more ethically sound pursuit than betting in any other way? Well, it comes down to obviously it's a, it's a, it's a merged combination of <clears throat> ethically sound and what recreation should be allowed in a free society. So it's not really a case of saying that you know, horse racing is ethically better, perhaps. Well, I suppose it's all relative, isn't it? Um, that I think there is... Well, there is certainly a widely held view that, that that very fast betting on slots is more dangerous. And so, yes, I, I suppose in relative terms, that is the case, that we, we aim for a free society wherever possible, but where we restrict, we should restrict the most dangerous first. Well, I'm professional gambler Patrick Veach there. Dave, what are your thoughts on, on what Patrick was saying? And again, it, it's, it's beating a similar drum to, to the one we heard a couple of times last week about the, this idea of separating out horse racing betting from you know, other forms of gambling and trying to suggest that there isn't an ethical equivalence between between the two, which you, know, you wouldn't persuade every journalist on The Guardian nor The Daily Mail to subscribe to. One of the consequences of um, looking at these different activities individually rather than in the round, if, if we say, for example, and I think it's a very good case uh, to be made that slots and that uh, that part of the gaming business is more injurious and is more insidious than uh, betting on horse racing. If then there is a limit on that, then it will be quite natural for bookmakers to push the areas of their business where there isn't a limit or there is a, a higher limit. When news broke for the very first time into the review of the, the Gambling Act of 2005, um, there was naturally concern among horse racing that, that that the recommendations could have a negative impact on the finances of the sport whether that's I think that the estimates at the time into affordability checks were I think 60 million at, at lowest and I think they went up to about 300 million at one point uh, per year which is obviously a pretty high figure but I think that as has been observed over the last few months, I think there are ways in which actually that restrictions on certain uh, parts of the gambling industry, I think that ultimately could prove to horse racing's benefit. We'll have to wait and see. Well, Dave, thank you. And thanks to, to Patrick and to Paul Nichols and to David Mintonelli in the programme as well. Have you got a tip for us for today? Yeah, we're going to Ludlow for the three o'clock and it's Terracita. A mare trained by Lucy Wadham, successful in the handicap sphere over three miles at Fakenham on New Year's Day. A rise to the tune of £8 to deal with here, but she's on an upward curve and I hope she can win again. Three o'clock race at Ludlow, selection number three, Teresita. 
Dave, thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do, most importantly, tell everybody you know. But also, if you've got the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review on any of the well-known podcast providers. We will see you again tomorrow. That was Thursday, January the 20th. Bye-bye.